This is the first of a two-episode recording of Pearl by an anonymous medieval poet, translated into modern English by Simon Armitage and read by Michael Elliott. It covers sections 1 to 10 of the poem. The text is from the Faber and Faber edition of 2016. Section 1 Beautiful pearl that would please a prince, fit to be mounted in finest gold. I say for certain that in all the East her precious equal I never found. So radiant and round, however revealed, so small, her skin so very smooth, of all the gems I judged and prized, I set her apart, unparalleled. But... I lost my pearl in a garden of herbs. She slipped from me through grass to ground, and I mourn now with a broken heart for that priceless pearl without a spot. And in that spot where it sprang from me, I've often watched, wishing for the one that drove away sorrow, lightened my load, roused my spirits, and rallied my health. Loss and longing lean on my heart, and my breast burns with the heat of the hurt. Yet no song was ever as sweetly sung as the silent moments that stole me away on the many occasions she came to mind. To think of her color, now clad in clods. Oh, black soil, you blot and spoil my precious pearl without a spot. Spices must thrive and spread in that spot where rot and ruin enrich the soil. Blooms of white and blue and red turn shining faces towards the sun. Flower and fruit could never fade where my pearl entered the dark earth. Grasses must grow from lifeless grains or wheat would never be brought to the barn. For goodness out of goodness is born, and such a seed couldn't fail to root, nor splendid spices sprout and shoot from that precious pearl without a spot. I went to the spot my words describe, entered the garden green with herbs in the month of August on holy day, when corn succumbs to the sharpened scythe. That pearl had rolled away from a mound where brightly lit plants cast bold shadows, ginger, gromwell, and gillyflower with peonies scattered in between, such a sweet scene for the eye to see, made fairer by fragrances floating up. I believe and know where that lovely one lives, my precious pearl, without a spot. In that same spot I clasped my hands, wholly overcome by the coldness of sorrow. A desolating grief had gripped my heart when reason could have put my mind at rest. I pined for my pearl in its earthen prison, and fierce thoughts fought back and forth. Though the nature of Christ offered me comfort, my wretched desire writhed in despair. Among those flowers I fell to the floor, my senses suddenly swamped by scent, and sank into heavy sleep on the ground where my pearl was lost, on the same spot. 
Section 2 Suddenly my spirit rose from that spot, while in body I remained asleep on the mound, and by God's grace my spirit embarked on a quest to where marvel and amazement happen. I couldn't say where I was in the world, but my soul was set down where cliffs split the sky, and I turned my face towards a forest where astounding stones astonished the eye. No one would believe what light they lent, what gleaming glory shone from them. Never on this earth did a human hand weave cloth so exquisite in ornament. Ornamenting the hills to every side were crystal cliffs of the clearest form. In and about stood bright-colored woods, trees with trunks of Indian blue. Layers of leaves like burnished silver shivered and shook on every bough. When clear daylight glided across them, they glinted and glimmered with a dazzling gleam. The grinding gravel which crunched underfoot was precious pearl of the Orient. So even sunbeams seemed dark and dim, outshone by opulent ornament. The image of highly ornamented hills made my spirit forget all feelings of grief. The air was so fresh with the scent of fruit, it nourished and fed me as if it were food. All shape and size of shimmering fowl flocked and flew as one through the wood. No stringed instrument making its sound could mimic the glorious music they made. When they beat their wings, out of those birds came a song of heavenly harmony. What person could hope for a pleasure more pure than to hear and see their ornament? Where rich ornament was arrayed all around, I followed, as fortune led me, through a forest. No tongue could tell of its true nature, for in beauty and wonder it went beyond words. In a state of ecstasy I strolled along, no bank high enough to prove a barrier. Flowers were fairer the further I went, among sedges, shrubs, spices, and pears, hedges, wetlands, and splendid streams with steep slopes like spun gold, and arrived at the shore of a winding river, overwhelming, O oh Lord, in its ornament. At the water's edge, Ornamenting its depths were bountiful banks of bright beryl. The surface swirled as it swept by, pouring forward, murmuring as it flowed, and the bed was studded with brilliant stones, glinting and glowing like light through glass, as radiance streams from distant stars in the winter sky while the, while the world sleeps. Because every pebble set into that pool was an emerald, or sapphire, or another jewel, the river looked luminous along its length. So gleaming were those gem-like ornaments. Section 3 The ornamented dazzle of downs and dales, of wood and water and splendid meadows, infused me with bliss, eased my burdens, soothed my sorrows, and dispelled my hurt. 
and I followed that freely flowing stream, light-hearted with elation, alive with joy. Venturing further through brook-filled valleys, my spirit gained strength with every step. When fortune puts a person to the test by offering solace or ordering suffering, the person she turns her attention towards finds more of either pleasure or pain. There was more splendor displayed in that scene than time would ever allow me to tell, and a human heart could hardly hold one-tenth of the rapturous gladness it aroused. I felt, therefore, that paradise itself must be there, beyond those broad banks, and supposed the stream a border of sorts, a dividing line through lovely lands, and that somewhere over the shore of the brook I would find the site of its walled city. The water was deep, and I didn't dare wade, but more and more I longed to cross. That longing mounted, till more than ever I desired to see beyond the stream, and though it was wonderful here where I walked, it appeared more wonderful over the water. I stopped and stared, surveyed my surroundings, impatient to find a fording place, but the dangers were great, and grew greater the further I strayed along the strand. I told myself not to hesitate, to fear no harm in those happy acres, but a curious image now caught my eye, which moved my mind more and more. A more marvelous matter amazed me now. Beyond that beautiful water I witnessed a crystal cliff, brilliantly bright, radiant with glorious gleaming rays, and seated at the foot of that summit was a child, a noble girl, a young woman of grace wearing a gown of iridescent white. And I knew her so well. I had seen her before. Like sawn gold that glistens inside, she sat at the base of the cliff, and she shone. I stared, astonished, and the longer I looked, the more I recognized and remembered her. The more I focused on her fine face and gazed in awe at her graceful form, waves, uh, waves of exultant emotion overwhelmed me with a force like nothing I'd felt before. Love encouraged me to call out her name, but shock had sent a hammer blow to my soul. To see her there in such strange surroundings had stunned my senses, almost stopping my heart. Then she lifted her head towards the light, and her face was so fine and ivory white that its wonder stung me. I stood there bewildered, as if mesmerized forevermore. Section 4 More in alarm than out of longing, I stood spellbound, unable to speak, my eyes transfixed but my tongue frozen, as hushed and watchful as a hawk in a hall. This appearance, I thought, is an apparition, and fear held me. How would I feel if the vision before me vanished from view without contact or closeness occurring between us? 
O blissful one, O unblemished soul, so flawless, fragile, so flatteringly slender, then she rose up in resplendent robes, a precious being in priceless pearls. Priceless pearls, imperially worn, were a marvelous sight, a miracle to the eye. Her figure as vivid as fleur de lis as she walked forward towards the water, her fine linen shone luminously white, open at the sides, every hem stitched with fabulous pearls, more stunning by far than any my eyes had fixed on before. And if memory serves, her flowing sleeves were adorned with pearls set down in pairs, and her matching gown glowed like morning, proudly apparelled with priceless pearls. That princess wore a priceless crown, studded with pearls and no other stones, pure, clear pearls arranged in pinnacles among figures of expertly fashioned flowers. She wore no other circlet or headdress, but her wimple fully encircled her face, her expression as earnest as a duke or earl, her complexion whiter than the bone of a whale. Loosely hanging, her hair lay lightly around her shoulders, shining like spun gold, and the almost transparent paleness of her pallor compared well with those priceless pearls. Her priceless wristband and the pretty hems at her collar cuffs and open neck were lined with pearls and pearls alone. Everything she wore was wondrously white. But one pearl especially took pride of place, burnished and unblemished, positioned at her breast. The man who attempted to imagine its magnitude would find himself flummoxed, his mind befuddled. In truth, no tongue could ever tell a sensible syllable about that stone, so clean and proud and clear and pure, unparalleled even among priceless pearls. In her priceless pearls, that precious girl arrived at the river on the opposite reach. No man was gladder from here to Greece than I was to watch her at the water's edge. She was nearer to my heart than an aunt or niece, and my love for her fierce and limitless. Then that special being spoke to me. She inclined low with a ladylike curtsy, removed the exquisite crown from her head, and with grace and courtesy greeted me. What a blessing to be born just to speak with that girl, dressed and adorned in priceless pearls. Section 5 Oh, pearl, in those priceless pearls, I said, are you really my pearl whose passing I mourn and grieve for alone through lonely nights? Endless sorrow I have suffered and endured since you slipped from my grasp. To the grassy earth, I am hollow with loss and harrowed by pain. Yet here you stand, lightened of all strife, at peace in the land of paradise. What fate has led my pearl forward and positioned me here to feel such pain? Entwined once, now torn from our twin ship, I live without joy, like a jeweler without jewel.
Then that jewelled one in her noble gems looked up and gazed with those grey-blue eyes, put on her crown of oriental pearls, and spoke without sentiment, saying to me, "'Sir, there's no truth in what you say. You lament that your pearl is lost forever when the exquisite coffer encasing her is this wonderful garden and glorious estate, and here is her home for eternity, where misery and melancholy never come near.' What worth this casket would truly hold if measured and judged by a master jeweler? But, gentle jeweler, if you are dejected at the loss of a gem which lent you such joy, then your mind pursues a mad purpose and troubles itself with a trifling cause. What rendered you bereft was only a rose that flowered and faded as nature intended, but now, through the nature of the chest where it lies, its worth as a precious pearl is proven, and you falsely infer your fate is a thief when he conjures you something from nothing quite clearly. Since you heap blame on the healing balm, I judge you to be no natural jeweler. That visitor was a jewel to me, then, a vision whose noble words were no less gemmed. Oh, best and blessed one, I said to her, you dispel my grief and great distress, so I ask you please to pardon me for believing my pearl was oblivion's prize. Now that I've found it again, I'll rejoice and dwell with that beauty in the bright dells and love my lord and all his laws who has brought blissfulness back to me. To join you beyond this wide water would make this man a joyful jeweler. Jeweler, that glittering gem, then said, Why must men joke? You must all be mad. The three utterances you issued all at once, each as null and empty as the next. What meaning they have must escape the man whose mouth moves ahead of his mind. Firstly, you feel you have found me in this valley, having seen the evidence with your own eyes. Secondly, you state that you will stay right here and live your life alongside me in this land. Thirdly, you think you will bridge this brook. No gentle jeweler could make such a journey. Section 6 I judge unworthy of praise the jeweler who only believes what his eyes behold, and call him discourteous and worthy of blame for believing our Lord would speak a lie, who faithfully promised to lift up your life should fortune cause your flesh to rot. You said the words of our Saviour askew by clinging to the saying that seeing is believing, an expression of a person's love of pride. It is unbecoming in a courteous man to try and to test, but to trust no truth beyond those facts which flatter his judgment. Now judge for yourself if you have spoken in the manner a man should address the Almighty. You say out loud you will live in this land. I think you must plead for permission first, and such a favor could well be refused. And you wish to pass over this watercourse. 
But first you must plot a different path. Your cold corpse must sink through the soil. It was forfeited by our ancestor Adam, who misguarded it in the Garden of Eden. Every man must experience cruel demise before God in his judgment will grant the crossing. Sweet one, I pleaded, that judgment you pass is a life sentence of sorrow and loss. Now I have gained what I thought was gone. Must I lose it again before my life's end? Why must I find, then forfeit my prize, my priceless pearl? You inflict such pain. What use if is treasure if it leads to tears when its absence causes the heart to ache. I'm indifferent now to how far I might fall, or the distance and depth to which I'm driven. Deprived of my precious pearl, I expect a dark journey till my judgment day. You judge your lot as dejection and hurt, said the gracious girl. Why is that so? Through his lament for lesser losses, man often misses the greater gain. Better to sign yourself with a cross and thank your God through thick and thin, because anger profits you not one penny. If man must suffer, he should sidestep stubbornness, and instead of dancing like a cornered deer, wriggling and writhing and bleating his woes without exit or escape either this way or that, he should heed the judgment of God in heaven. Call him unjust till the end of the earth, but he will not swerve by a single step. No crumb of comfort will come your way if you wallow and wail in the well of pity. So quiet in your quibbling. Quit your carping and swiftly and honestly seek his sympathy. Hope that your prayers will pierce his heart, so that mercy might do what mercy does best. The comfort he offers can ease your anguish, scatter your fears, put sorrow to flight. So, bury your feelings or flail in fury. The Almighty alone is judge and jury. Section 7 with judicious words, I said to my jewel, Let there be no offense to my lord if I rage and rave with spluttering speech, but my heart is heavy, and talk rushes headlong like water from a spring, surging and spewing. I fall on his mercy this moment and forever. Never reproach me with wounding words, despite my errors, my gilded angel, but kindly offer your consolations, be caring and thoughtful, and recall this, you who paired me with painful despair were the bedrock on which my bliss was built. My bliss and my grief. You have been both, but my grief has been the greater by far. Since you were exiled from earthly care, I could not guess where my pearl had gone, but seeing it again, my sorrow subsides. Once in harmony, we were torn in half. May God forbid we be broken again. We so seldom meet by tree or stone. 
Though your conversation with me is courteous, I lack all manners and am little more than dust. Let the mercy of Christ and Mary and John be the base on which I build my bliss. You stand before me in a blissful state, and myself a demoralized, mournful man. You appear to notice nothing of this, though I suffer greatly from searing sadness. But since you appear in my presence here, I ask you to say without argument, and to answer my question with hand on heart, what life you lead through dawn and dusk. My spirit soars, knowing your position is one of worth and high honor, for this is the ground and this the gate by which the road to my blissfulness runs. May bliss find and follow you, sir, said that figure of lovely limb and face. You are welcome to walk and wait in this place, for now your speech is pleasing to hear. Arrogant attitude and haughty pride, I have to tell you, are detested here. My lord has no liking of life's complainers, and only the humble find a home in his house. When you come to rest at last in his realm, be deeply devout and meek in demeanor. My lord the lamb, who loves such a manner, is the rock on which my blissfulness rests. You say I lead a blissful life and wonder at such an exalted existence. As you know full well, when your pearl fell, I was young in years and innocent at heart. But my lord, the lamb, by divine love brought me to marriage and made me his bride, crowned me his queen to bloom in blessedness today and tomorrow till eternity. His honor and heritage I have inherited. I am wholly his and his alone. His grace, his nobility and family line are the root and branch of all my bliss. Section 8 My bliss, I said. Can your tale be true? Don't take offense if I speak out of turn by questioning if you are heaven's queen, worshipped by everyone the world over. We believe in Mary, mother of all grace, who bore a child while pure and chaste. No one could vie for the virgin's crown unless they surpassed her in some noble aspect. Rare and unrivaled, unique in her sweetness, she has come to be called the Phoenix of Arabia, a peerless creature that flew from her creator, as did the Queen of Courtesy. Courteous queen, said that lovely creature, kneeling on the floor, raising her face, matchless mother and fairest maiden, fount from which grace and goodness flows. Then from her prayers she stood and paused, and in that place she spoke these words. Sir, many seek grace and are granted it here, but in this domain there are no usurpers. All heaven belongs to that holy empress, and earth and hell are within her dominion. No one will oust her from her high office, for she is the queen of courtesy. The company of the court of God's kingdom live by a custom unique to this country. Everyone who arrives and enters here is called the queen or king of the realm, and no one person shall deprive another, but derive pleasure from a neighbor's possessions and wish their crowns were fivefold in worth, if such an improvement were possible. 
But my lady, mother of Jesus our Lord, she is highest of all throughout this empire, and none of our company is sorry that it is so, for she is the queen of courtesy. And through such courtesy as St. Paul preaches, we are all joined with Jesus Christ, as head and arm and leg and navel are firmly fastened to each person's frame, so every single Christian soul belongs to the master of spiritual mysteries. Could hate or similar sentiments exist between one being's body parts? Does your head experience anger or envy if your wrist or finger flaunts a ring? And like those limbs, we live and love among heaven's courteous queens and kings. Courtesy, I said. It seems certain, and heartfelt charity are at home here. But without offense, let me offer these words. If you really inhabit these rarefied heights and became a queen while so young in years, what high honor might be handed to him who stood strong and steadfast through strife, enduring penance through endless days, and earning his bliss through bodily ache? Surely he would enter heaven with ease and be crowned a king of courtesy? Section 9 Our gentle Lord acts too generously if what you say is actually so. You lived for less than two years in our world, knew neither your creed nor paternoster nor how to pray or to please God, but were dubbed a queen on your first day. My Lord, excuse me, but I cannot believe that God would make such a great mistake. On my word, young woman, it would be one thing if you were counted a countess of heaven or allotted the role of a lower lady, but a queen, no less? That exceeds the limit. There is no limit to our Lord's love, were that worthy woman's words to me. For all is honorable that he ordains, and he practices nothing that is not pure, as the message of Matthew in the Mass reminds us in the true gospel of Almighty God. That parable paints a fitting picture which likens honor to the light of heaven. My kingdom on high, he explains, is comparable to the winemaker looking to hire his workers at that time of the year when the date dictates to labor at the vines until daylight's limit. All laborers know that date is a limit, so the vineyard owner rose very early to take on hands to tend his estate and found a gang of able fellows, men who would work in the fields for a wage of a penny a day. With the pay agreed, they toiled at the trying and tiring tasks, trimming and tying, cultivating the crop. At nine, the master went back to the market where men hung about, kicking their heels, why wait here idle and aimless, he asked, when the light of day is not limitless? We came before sunrise at night's limit, said the unemployed in unison, and we've waited here since the dawn of day, willing to work, but no one wants us. Go to my land, begin your labors, said the master of the vineyard, making this vow. What wage you are due at the day's end, I promise to pay you. That is my pact. 
So they went to the vineyard and got to work, and the lord of the manor went on in this manner, bringing hired hands to the vines every hour till the long day narrowed and neared its limit. As day neared its limit, at evensong, one hour before the sun goes down, men were still milling about in the market, and the vintner addressed them in a serious voice. "'Why loiter and idle all day long?' They replied, no employer had appointed them. Go to my land, young laborers, and work at the vines as well as you can. And soon the world was shrouded in shadow, the sun was lost, and it was late. As he summoned the workers to receive their wage, the day had lengthened and outlived its limit. Section 10 The Lord acknowledged the limit of day and called to his purser. Pay these men, hand out whatever earnings I owe, and further, so no man finds fault with me, arrange that they stand in a single row and pay every person the same, a penny. Start with the last at the end of the line and finish with the first who stands at the front. But those at the front took offense at that thought, arguing that they had labored the longest. These others have only worked for an hour. More effort should merit greater reward. It seems to us we deserve more, having suffered the heat of the sun all day, than those who toiled for two hours or less, yet you offer us earnings of equal amount. The master said to one of the men, Friend, our deal is not in doubt. Take what I owe you and get off home. I hired you for a penny. That was our pact. But now you argue at our agreement. A penny was the price according to our contract. It is wrong to raise the terms by wrangling. So what do you mean by asking for more? Moreover, can it be a misdemeanor to do whatever I wish with my wealth? Do you mean to take advantage of me because I am a just and generous man? So I practice by the same principle, says Christ. The last shall be first to be given their lot, and the first and fastest shall be left till last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Thus the poor shall always have their portion, though they come late and in little time their labor is spent with scant results, God will be all the more merciful. I have in this place more peace and bliss, more status as a lady and fullness of life than any person in the world might win who seeks a just adjudication. I had barely begun my obedience. I entered the vineyard at evening, as it were, yet he did not forget to put me first, paying me all of my wage forthwith. Others who labor their whole lifetime and strive, sweat, and slog forever are left wanting. They wait for their wage and may well do so for a year or more. Then I talked again, more tersely this time. I cannot agree with your argument. God is a ready and righteous ruler, or Holy Scripture is a hollow fable. In a clear voice, a verse of the Psalter is proof of an incontrovertible point. Supreme Sovereign, seated in judgment, you repay each man according to merit. Now, if you should come to receive payment before him who labored all day long, 
that the last to work claim the larger prize and the lesser person makes more profit.